Well, we are uh, thinking about Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, and it's the part of the Old Testament. And Paul uh, says we need to read the Old Testament because they are sacred writings um, that are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Although the writings form an Old Testament, uh, in so many ways they are prophetic and look forward to their fulfilment in Jesus Christ. They witness to him. However, that's only one half of the answer. For Paul goes on in verses 16 to 17 to say, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So the Old Testament has an educational and a moral value. It can correct wrong ideas and wrong behaviour and train us in what is right and true. And how we need that today in the 21st century. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, referring to the Moses, uh, the Moses and the uh, wilderness wanderings, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6 and 11, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did, but they were written down for our instruction. As Peter Adam, the Old Testament scholar, insists, we can see that these two great purposes, the prophetic and the moral, are not mutually contradictory. Therefore, what God has joined together, we should not separate. We are to study these Sunday mornings Malachi, which is a book pointing uh, forward explicitly to Christ's coming, but has many lessons for the life of faith generally. So at this point, perhaps you could open your Bibles at page uh, 801, the Bibles in the pews, or if you're watching online, uh, an electrical device uh, at Malachi 1 and verses 1 to 5. And I want to say what I have to say under three headings. First, Malachi's introduction. Uh, Secondly, God's love. And thirdly, God's justice. First, Malachi's introduction. How does Malachi introduce himself and what he's to say? Well, look at verse 1. The oracle, or burden as it can be translated, of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Every word in Malachi's personal introduction is meaningful. So note three things. One, what Malachi has to say in our verses, we'll discover is corrective. It was a serious oracle, not light-hearted. It was a burden. And so we need to be challenged by what we study these Sunday mornings. But two, it was the word of the Lord. First note that claims uh, there that uh, God is a speaking God. In the New Testament, we are told long ago and many times and in many places, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, including Malachi. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world, Hebrews 1, verse 1. And as 2 Peter says, uh, 1, verse 21 says, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
Yes, it uh, came through the prophet Malachi and his, his own uh, style. <clears throat> However, at the same time, miraculously, the Holy Spirit ensured it was the word of God himself. And then Malachi's message is called in verse 1, the word of the Lord. The word Lord in capitals in the original is the most holy name for God, Yahweh, the great I am, the one who is from everlasting to everlasting and the creator of space and time. So being our maker, how unreasonable and foolish not to listen to and learn from him, our maker, and with his, the maker's instructions. And then point three, Malachi's message, whose name is uh, messenger, or name means messenger, was in the first instance addressed to Israel, the name of God's covenant people. Now, going back centuries, historically, Israel was another name for the patriarch Jacob, even non-believers will know of Jacob and Jacob's sons, 12 sons, made famous by Tim Rice and uh, uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical. For one of the 12 was Joseph with his amazing uh, coat of many colours. And these sons' families led to the formation of the 12 tribes of Israel. However, in the preceding centuries to Malachi, from King David in 1000 BC to the Babylonian captivity in the, uh, uh, the, the early 500s, uh, they both, uh, uh, well, both the northern Israel and southern Judah had a very checkered history. You discover that as you read the Old Testament. But one of the worst things was the Babylonian captivity. For Jerusalem was taken captive with its protective walls and beautiful temple destroyed, and many people forced into exile uh, in Babylon as punishment for their spiritual disobedience, their sin. But then the Persians conquered Babylonians, and Cyrus, the brilliant uh, Persian leader, immediately encouraged the exiled Jews uh, home uh, to, 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 to go home uh, in 538 BC and a number of did. And back home, the distinction between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Judah was no longer operative. There was one Israel again. However, the Jerusalem temple was rebuilt, and later the walls were be rebuilt by uh, under ne Nehemiah, the, uh, the Persian, with Persian permission. And it was in this time transition of transition that scholars think Malachi was prophesying to Israel not individuals, but to such of the nation as would hear. So Israel in Malachi's time was the name given to all Jacob's descendants, having never left Palestine or those returned home from exile. And they were to live faithfully in the terms of the Lord's covenant, at the heart of which were those Ten Commandments uh, given uh, by God at the time of Moses. So this is the context for the book of Malachi, which is the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, the messenger. That brings us secondly to the declaration of God's love for his people and verse 2 to verse 3a. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother? 
declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, standing for God's uh, chosen people, the Israelites, but Esau I have hated. Esau standing for his descendants, the people of Edom being southeast of Israel. And there are four lessons here. The first lesson Malachi wants to remind his hearers of is that God loves his people. Back then in the fifth century, and we know that is true of the new Israel, those believing in Jesus Christ as Saviour and Lord. So Malachi suggests that a fundamental question is uh, in theology is not about God's existence, for deep down everyone believes in something as ultimate. Uh, as G.K. Chesterton famously said, when men choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing. They become capable of believing in anything. So the fundamental question in theology is what is God like? And fundamentally, he is first a loving God. As Lamentations 3:22 to 23 says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So God's love for his people, God's love for his people is the first lesson. The second lesson is that God loves his people even when experiences make them doubt. And here it's typical of Malachi that he teaches by the dialogue method, by a statement of the fact followed by a a response from the man in the street. So the fundamental statement is, I have loved you, says the Lord. However, the response is negative, but you say, how have you loved us? For those in the street hadn't understood the lessons God had been teaching them. They needed to count their blessings. For starters, there was a new temple, and the walls had been rebuilt, But they only saw the negatives. There was Persian foreign rule still. The new temple was much inferior to the old temple. And the the rebuilding of the walls had been a struggle. So how does God try to persuade these people, disillusioned and discouraged? Well, the answer is the, the third lesson, namely that God's love entirely depends on God's grace. For Malachi's audience needs to turn from their own thoughts and ideas to what God has done both in history and in prehistory in terms of the predestining purposes of God. So through Malachi, God reminds them of Esau and Jacob, verses 2 and 3. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated Esau and Jacob were twin brothers, the sons of Isaac and Rebekah, with Isaac, the son of Abraham. But Esau was born first. However, God did not choose him, the firstborn, for renewing the covenant promises God made to Abraham first and then to Isaac, the father of Esau and Jacob. He chose Jacob even after Jacob's dishonesty. With his mother's connivance, he had virtually robbed Esau of his inheritance. So totally against expectation, God promised Jacob, in a famous visionary experience, in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed, Genesis 
28, uh, verse 14. And in later life, Jacob uh, saw the beginning of that promise uh, of blessing in his son Joseph, who became prime minister of Egypt. But this seems at first so unfair. However, Paul helps us understand God's elected love, for such is this. In our New Testament reading, we read uh, nine, uh, Romans 9 uh, uh, and 10 to 13, where Paul is referring to the birth of the twins. When Rebekah had conceived children, the twins he saw in Jacob, by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I, have, I, I loved, but Esau I hated. So when God loves someone, it's not for what they have done. It is simply because he loves them. God leaves other people to their freedom to choose what they heartily desire. In the case of Esau and his Edomites, they chose to follow the contemporary culture of the idolatrous forms of Baal worship with its sexual immorality and even child sacrifices. But God was not loving Israel because they never were tempted with Baalism, for they were, or that they were virile and healthy, for they weren't. Now, some may have remembered at this point in Malachi's time, Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 to 8. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love upon you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. Yes, this doctrine presents all sorts of intellectual problems, namely that God can love someone not for who they are, or for what they've done. It's simply because he loves them unconditionally. But if it's true, it's true. And all God's people have experienced that love. And it's truly humbling. And that's the fourth lesson, that God's elected love is humbling. If you are a believer here this morning, try this experiment. Think of someone you know who has become positively anti-Christian. Then remind yourself that you haven't become like them because God loves you, uh, not because you are better than they are. It's because of God's love that you had the family you've had or the education you've had or some negative experience that have resulted where you are today, trusting and seeking to obey Jesus Christ. Yes, you should argue against and witness to this believer when it's appropriate, but humbly thinking, there but for the the love of God and the grace of God go I. So to recap, first, God loves his people. Two, God still loves his people when experience makes them doubt. Three, God's love entirely depends on his grace. And four, God's love is humbling. That brings us thirdly and finally to God's justice and verses 3b to 5 or 4. 
Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will turn down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. But God, but does God ever hate? Some find this a difficult concept. However, the answer has to be yes, for he had sinned, and this is the other side of the coin to God's love. For example, Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 19 say, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and heads that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Some tries to ease the difficulty by arguing that we are dealing here with a Hebrew idiom where love and hate is used relatively, uh, meaning prefer or to think less of. But that does not uh, alleviate the critical issue. That is, Jacob was elected by God and Esau was not. Esau was passed over. Jacob was privileged, even though he was a sinner. Esau was not privileged, and he and the people of Edom paid for their sins and so experienced the justice of God. And that justice or punishment, or God's hatred, is spelled out in verses 3b to 4. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we will... Uh, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. And the Edomites were wicked. We've already mentioned the Baalists, but God's people in Malachi's time could never forget that the Edomites had wickedly joined the Babylonians in the attack and sack of Jerusalem at the beginning of the 500 B.C., Obadiah 10, 14 to 14, verses 14, uh, describe that. However, there is a still a great mystery here. But as Deuteronomy says, 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do the words of this law. God's elective or predestining purposes will remain a mystery. But what Malachi reveals is that God is loving and also God is just. And his love makes him hate evil. So there is electing love and justice. Both are vital, the love and the justice of God. Because their resolution, of course, was at Calvary, the cross where God so loved the world that he gave his only son to suffer the justice that we all deserve. For there, according to 1 Peter 2, verse 24, Jesus Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We must conclude. 
So I can close with the prophecy we know to be true. For the people of God whom he loves are not now just limited to the tribes of Jacob, the people of Israel. That is because of Jesus' last commission, uh, namely to make disciples of all nations. Matthew 20, verse 19. And that message of the forgiveness of sins and new life in Christ has spread worldwide. So verse 5, first added in the 400s BC, has already come true. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Let's pray. And let's pray at a time of silence. And uh, we think, uh, thank God for his love for us, unconditionally, undeserved. But uh, if someone here is uh, still asking questions, remember that God so loved the world, Jesus speaking, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And uh, there's a whoever, wonderful whoever, and God is sovereignty, says that. Let's, uh, in the silence, pray appropriately to ourselves. Lord, in your mercy, hear our thanks and prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. And so we...